Chapter Seventeen of the Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Seventeen. The Church and the End. It completes, so to say, the dignity of Piccadilly that St. James's Church should stand in it, and it is fitting, I think, that with the church my book should end. For whatever better and happier thoughts a church may suggest to others, to me at least it means first and last an insistence on mortality. It is always sad to come to the end of a thing one loves, and in parting from Piccadilly, which has been a labour of love to me to write about, I cannot but feel a sorrow not altogether sweet. St. James's Church and the memorials of its dead are not an unfit theme for my last chapter. Not that the personal associations of the church are all melancholy by any means. Harry Jermyn, who owned the ground on which it is built, was only sad in another sense, and so was Charles the Second, who issued the letters patent for it. Yet death, in a way, presided over its beginning, for both Harry Jermyn, made Earl of St. Albans and privately married to Henrietta Maria, and Charles himself, died while it was building. It was finished and consecrated in 1685. To enter on an architectural disquisition on its merits is happily not part of my duty. The reader probably knows them, or he can go see for himself. I do not think it Sir Christopher Wren's masterpiece, or fancy that his ghost haunts it in preference to St. Paul's. Quite the other way, in fact, for he had architectural troubles in connection with it. The steeple he designed was judged to be too expensive, and one designed by a carpenter in the parish called Wilcox, which cost one hundred pounds less, was preferred. Bitter thoughts of Wilcox must occur to Wren if he revisits his work, but he was proud of the interior, and surely with justice. I know many churches more sympathetic to me, but the symmetry of the columns and roof, the whole fashioned with a sort of fine simplicity to seat as many worshippers as possible with the means at the architect's command, contents our vision. The adornments I care for less, but will not dogmatise about taste. From the first, St. James's Church was fashionable, and its memories are mainly of fashionable folk and their ways. In Sir John Vanbrugh's relapse, which was produced ten years or so after the church was finished, Lord Foppington, the type of all that was modish, tells us what sort of congregation sat there. Foppington. Why, faith, madam, Sunday is a vile day, I must confess. I intend to move for leave to bring in a bill that players may work upon it, as well as the hackney coaches. Though this I must say for the government, it leaves us the churches to entertain us. But there again, they begin so abominably early, a man must rise by candlelight, to get dressed by the psalm. Berinthia. Pray, which church does your lordship most oblige by your presence? Foppington. Oh, St. James's, madam, there's much the best company. Amanda. Is there good preaching, too? Foppington. Why, faith, madam, I can't tell. A man must have very little to do there that can give an account of the sermon. Berinthia. You can give us an account of the ladies, at least. Foppington. Or I deserve to be excommunicated. 
there is my lady tattle my lady prate my lady titter my lady leer my lady giggle and my lady grin these sit in the front of the boxes and all church time are the prettiest company in the world stap my vitals mayn't we hope for the honour to see your ladyship added to our society madam amanda alas my lord i am the worst company in the world at church i'm apt to mind the prayers or the sermon or foppington one is indeed strangely apt at church to mind what one should not do but i hope madam at one time or another i shall have the honour to lead your ladyship to your coach there i have copied out the whole passage because it gives us more vividly and truly than i can hope to an idea of the church and its worshippers as it was when it first was used we see the fine ladies sitting under grinling gibbons's altarpiece and my lord ogling them and leading his favourite to her coach carefully the while how curious are those changing affectations mispronouncing his o's he led her by the way not into piccadilly but into jermyn street on which the church then fronted as the more important street of the two it is possible that if my lord foppington had listened to the sermon he would not have understood it but it is probable he would have heard a good one the preferment has usually been held one of the prizes of the church and many of the incumbents have been made bishops a few archbishops archbishop tennyson was the first rector lord foppington sat under dr william wake d d who also became archbishop of canterbury in due time none of these incumbents i hope and think is likely to haunt the worldly scene of piccadilly though perhaps some of them like to linger now and then in the pleasant rectory house which suggests a dignified domesticity and seems out of place in that part of piccadilly now so little domestic one of the curates however was so much at home in piccadilly or wherever else fate bestowed him that i must by no manner of means exclude him from my pages i mean the late prebendary brookfield that gay and accomplished humorist father of mr charles brookfield the player and playwright who was curate under john edward kemp footnote prebendary kemp died at the age of ninety-seven on the day i wrote this chapter he used to relate how the lord derby who was prime minister sat in a gallery pew right over the pulpit and would write notes for a speech there sometimes looking over the rector's shoulder to see if the sermon was near its end, end footnote. those of my readers and i hope this means all of them who have read the book mr charles brookfield and his wife wrote about the former's parents will perceive at once that prebendary brookfield's i say it without the least offence to his clerical character is one of the most delightful ghosts they could meet in piccadilly and quite in touch with most of the spirits i have imagined there so human was he so sympathetic and debonair his sermons in the church drew london one of them in which some incautious mistrust of the literal acceptance of divine writ was expressed caused almost a scandal and the good lord shaftesbury protested that the man's an atheist they were strikingly dramatic in tone as one who used to hear them has told me and indeed in mr brookfield the father a fine actor was lost to the stage it is recorded that he once kept a party in trinity cambridge it included the great dr thompson and other serious and mature persons 
rolling on the floor in laughter for an hour with his comic deliveries. He was, of course, an eagerly sought guest at great men's tables, and among others that in Bath House, Piccadilly, saw him often. There was a touch of the Abbe Parson about him, just a suggestion of Thackeray's Reverend Sampson, pour le bon motif, as it were. Could I leave out such a jolly spirit as this? The reader would never forgive me. But he must forgive me if I do no more than mention a few of the celebrated people who were christened or buried in St. James's Church. Their connection with Piccadilly is not sufficient for my rules. If the reader's imagination is equal to the picture of Lord Chesterfield, him of the letters and the manners and morals Dr. Johnson so bitterly described, of the famous Lord Chesterfield as a polite baby, I can gratify him with the knowledge that here Lord Chesterfield was christened. So was the first William Pitt, who should have been a still more remarkable baby. Mrs. Delaney, who lived so long and knew so many people, was buried here in 1788. James Dodsley, the bookseller, lies here, and James Gilray, the caricaturist, who threw himself from the window of Miss Humphrey's print shop in St. James's Street, hard by. Tom Durfey was buried here, and Dick Steele had placed a tablet with Honest Tom Durfey on it at the entrance to the church in Jermyn Street. Mr. Wheatley tells us that the tablet was taken down some years ago as unsuited to the sanctity of the place. It is not recorded, however, that the remains of old Q have been removed from underneath the altar. R.I.P. And now I come to the end. Like most goodbyes, this too is best said quickly. I confess to some sentiment in the moment. In spite of the horrors which an evilly inspired and absurdly called civilization inflicts on the place now, I still feel something of the charm of Piccadilly, and I have laboured my best in gratitude. Well or ill, the work is done, and the ghostly figures fade. One looks after them as they go, sadly, oneself to fade also sooner or later, and belike, since the life of the dead is in the memory of the living, to fade far more completely. Harriot Mellon and Emma Hamilton, Fox and Byron, the Duke and Palmerston, and old Q. I take my leave of them, and Frederick Locker Lampson gives me a too sadly fitting envoy for its Hail Ani Fugakes, the wise and the silly, old P or old Q, we must quit Piccadilly. The end of chapter seventeen and the end of the ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street.